That is the most important thing to invest in. It should be the basis of your entire company. It's more important than your advertising, your marketing, your engineering. It is the most important thing in your entire company. And most companies never stop to think about it. Welcome to the Authentically Successful Show. I'm Carol Schultz, founder and CEO of Vertical Elevation, a talent equity and leadership coaching and advisory firm. We partner with founders and CEOs to create talent-centric organizations, either where they don't currently exist or rebuild companies into talent-centric organizations. We are committed to supporting your vision and values by creating healthy, successful companies, leveraging the best talent, retention, development, and succession strategies. Listen at the end of the show for information about becoming my next guest on one of the most important podcasts for building thriving companies. Here we go. Joining me today is David Barrett, founder and CEO of Expensify, a lifelong programmer who founded Expensify in 2008 and built it into the most popular pre-accounting platform on the planet. He's recognized as one of the world's top network engineers, having created Expensify's blockchain-powered database a year before Satoshi's white paper on Bitcoin. So for anybody who knows blockchain will know that who that is, and those who don't really won't care. <laughs> David, welcome. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So it, it, tell me a little bit more about your platform and what it does and how the idea came up for you. Sure. Well, I mean, I think there's probably, that's a big question. It's a pretty open-ended question. Yes. So maybe I'll start with the origin story and kind of go to okay. where it is today. And Got so it. when I started, so my background, as I meant, you mentioned, is I'm a programmer since I was six, uh, computer graphics and video games were my jam. Um, and went through like a series of disastrous startups, um, most joining companies, and there's all basically failed for the same boring reasons again and again. Um, the last startup I joined uh, was a very small startup, had like a tiny exit, but enough to, you know, put some uh, money in my, in my pocket. I lived in uh, San Francisco in the, um, in the Tenderloin. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I wanted to basically create a, a, a platform where I could help uh, sort of the houseless people in my neighborhood, uh, basically just like ensure everyone in my street could get a hot meal. And so I created basically a, a card, like a private label food stamps card that basically, you know, was up to $10 a day, um, only once a day that I could hand out to people on the streets. Um, getting this card made required getting like, you know, a whole platform, bankers on board and things like this. And they were just very confused. And so I had to <laughs> invent a fictional corporate card in order to get this private label food stamp card built that I wanted to do. And I literally just didn't even intend to build it. Basically, it's like, oh, it's expensified. It's corporate card for the masses. It's basically business owners give this card to their employees and every purchase they make goes back to their personal credit cards. They keep them on. So same technology I wanted for my private label food stamps card, but just presented as this fictional expense management company. And they're like, oh, that sounds safe and boring. And I get my expense reports too. And so that's how I got into mm -hmm. it. And so what's... Um, developed into being, it's like, you know, really a premier, you know, startup focused, uh, small business, uh, corporate card that basically is, uh, it doesn't tap into your credit limit. And so you can just, um, uh, issue these cards, to your employees, and then every purchase, we capture the receipt information from the point of sale and then feed that directly into your accounting system. Uh, we also do reimbursements where you can scan receipts and we'll read the information off those receipts and pay back your employees. And so it's basically a, a pre-accounting mm -hmm. platform. And the word pre-accounting means all of the accounting that's done by non-accountants, uh, all of the employees who are involved in gathering and organizing information to feed to the accountants. That's basically the world that we sort of master. Interesting. I, I mean, how did you, like, where, where'd the idea come for this for you? I mean, like you wanted to, you said you wanted to help people in your neighborhood. Like, yeah. is that something that you've always been interested in is, you know, being altruistic like that? I, mean, I guess. I mean, I, I don't know. I kind of bristle at the term altruistic because it implies some degree of sort of sacrifice. And I think that, uh, you know, wherever I live, like that's, it's like if you're cleaning up your front yard, like it's not altruistic to mow your lawn. That's just like, right. no, it's where you live. You, you want it to be nice. Right. And so I just wanted the places around me to be nice. And so I basically, if I'm in the tenderloin and I'm seeing people in need, like that's not fun. Like I, I want to help them out. I, and I had the means to help them out. And so right. now as the company has expanded, now Expensify actually, I mean, we're got employees all over the world, you know, public company. We got like, you know, you know uh, tens of thousands of customers around the world, million users, things like this. Um, and uh, and so now we can actually help on a much bigger scale. Like the world is our backyard. Uh, part built into Expensify is our nonprofit called Expensify.org, 
And so every time you swipe the card, for example, a small donation is made to our nonprofit and then it's just split into different funds, which are linked to the types of purchases. So for example, if you go to a restaurant with our card, it makes a donation to our hunger fund. If you book a hotel, it goes to our homeless fund, things like this. And so we try to build our charity model directly into the business model. And so it's not altruistic in the sense that like, yes, it does good for the world, but it doesn't come at our expense. Basically, we use this as a key feature we use to sell our card. And so basically this charity model helps the business itself and the business helps the charity and they kind of go together. That's really interesting. How do you find your prospects since we're talking about that? Well, um, yeah, I would say that's like the hardest thing in the world. Like custom, like product development is hard. Customer acquisition is so much harder than that. Um, and so I'd say for us, uh, we've been unusual that for the bulk of our history, we've done no advertising, did no sales, things like this. It's a hundred percent inbound. And so they oh. are, in fact, what makes Expensify different than everyone, all of our competition is we have a completely different business model than everyone else. Everything starts with an individual employee downloading the mobile app for free and just starting to use it inside of the company without asking permission, without, without we didn't be asked. And then we turn their expense report into a highly targeted marketing message directly to the decision maker. So all of our competition is basically out there like, you know, buying lists and calling people and things like this. And it's a very high cost of sale model that only it's like the enterprise sales model, but then everyone tries to apply it in the SMB. They're like, oh, we can apply that sales model <laughs> yeah. in the part of the market that's unacquired. But the reason it's been unacquired is because the business models work right. down there. Right. Um, and so our model is different in that it's basically a zero marginal cost uh, viral growth word of mouth model. And so it grows like you know wildfire in these uh, untapped parts of the market. And the SMB is by far the bigger, better part of the market because it has no margin erosion. Like there's no competition. Uh, all of the enterprise sales models are just fighting against each other. And so there's like this, you know, the thing about the Fortune 1000, there's only a thousand of them. Everyone knows who they are. Everyone's calling them. And so if you have a model that's going after it, the same group as all of your competition and you've got no differentiation and you're, and at least in, in lots of your competitors are willing to be unprofitable, there's just no way to make a real business there. Mm -hmm. Like we just go where most of the companies or the competition isn't. Uh, and so we are able to monetize our SMB users like five times more than you can the enterprise user. Like the margins are so much thicker and people just don't pay attention to basically like, oh, the SMB sucks. I'm like, no, it's actually better in every way. Uh, if you have a business model, which is designed to capture them, which no one else does. Well, and, and that's actually very, it, it's similar in nature, you know, as I'm listening to you, to, uh, you know, the blue ocean strategy, if you're familiar and yeah. anybody listening to this is familiar with this, right? You know, you, what you're describing is um, all these other companies fighting in the red ocean. Yeah, I'm not super familiar with that concept, but like the way I think it was like a pool and like, yeah, we swim in the same pools of the competition, but they're just like, fighting to the death in the shallow. Right. End. And that's, like, that's generally the premise and, mm -hmm. about behind, behind blue ocean strategy. And you know, the red ocean is like the bloody ocean, right? The, oh yeah. That, the same absolutely. Business. That's, that's yeah, what that's like. It's all yeah. chummed up waters. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, you, 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 when you got out of school, um, in the 10 years from the time you got out of school until you founded Expensify, you had seven jobs and you mentioned that, you know, you had a series of failed startups. Mm -hmm. Why do you believe that those um, startups failed? And yeah, I mean, it's that's the crazy thing. It's like they, they don't even fail for creative reasons. Um, <laughs> it's basically like most, like the vast, like all the businesses I've been with, always failed for the same dumb reasons. And that's basically, and it comes back to uh, every one of them was able to build the product they set out to build because product development is, while it's hard, it's the easiest thing you'll ever do. Like very few businesses fail because they just cannot do the thing they, like can't build the thing they want to build. Right. They fail because no one gives a shit. It's basically, it's like, way to go. You built this thing and no one cares. Uh, like every single product we built just had no market. Like I worked in a motorcycle racing simulation company. Like the market for games is huge. The market for simulations is small. The market for motorcycle racing simulations is just non-existent. So like, but no one noticed that until we'd already spent years building it. So, so is what I'm hearing that that and potentially the other companies that you worked for didn't actually have a problem that was in need of being solved? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think that's, that's probably like a simplified fashion. It's like, it's basically, they are basically a solution in search of a problem. Um, absolutely. Right. Which is, which is a problem. But that, that, but that can work too. Like you can basically, you know, convince people that they have a problem. Um, but you still like, but you just have to have a method to do it. Like that. I mean, I'm sure not to say that these products couldn't have been sold. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that they weren't sold. Um, mm -hmm. And so whatever 
combination of things there. It was like someone's job is to make sure someone cared about it at the end of the day. And that person fucked up. And so there's just like nothing there. And so again and again, it's basically uh, the same like high paid executives. I remember like, you know, every, and we see this again and again, or like um, this, this common pattern where it's like mm-hmm. you start a company and it's small and then, you know, it, it, it grows. And then they hire like a bunch of like very high paid executives from like, you know, fancy titles and things like this. And everyone sucks. And the thing is, everyone even knows it while it's happening. Like it's, it's like a slow motion train wreck that everyone mm-hmm. participates in voluntarily. And you're in this company and be like, well, this is stupid, but we're doing it. And they do it. It's like, yep, yeah, that didn't work. It's like, well, did, shouldn't someone just say something and just do something different? And I think that's the most astonishing thing is being a part of a failure when everyone sees it's failing and no one pulls the ripcord. Well, you know, I, I think often it's because people are emotionally attached, right? They're emotionally attached to what they've spent their time and money building. And when you're emotionally attached, it's, it's really hard to let go, right? I think that's probably a component. I think the mm-hmm. bigger component is just, you know, the imposter dilemma that we all face. And it's so hard to say no to something that everyone else does. Like, and especially if you're like, you're dealing with like a VC backed business. Like I think the great myth of Silicon Valley is that it's about building businesses and it straight up isn't like the overwhelming majority of businesses built by Silicon Valley will never be profitable. We're never right. even intended to be profitable. Mm-hmm. There's no actual business. And it's mm-hmm. like, it's become a truism. It's just like you, the, the founder builds a business and their customer is the investor, like basically the employees and everything else, the employees of the product. Um, and so there's no intention of actually having something that lasts a long time and shocker, it doesn't. And, but then the VCs will come to you and be like, Hey, here's, you know, your playbook for success. And 99% of the time it fails, but you should follow it anyway, because everyone else did. And in the process, the VCs make money, the founders make money, the employees get screwed, customers end up with nothing, but that's fine because for the VC playbook, it isn't about employees or customers. It's about the investors and the investors. And more specifically, it's about the VCs mm-hmm. and the VCs always make money. And so I think that it's no surprise that when you follow a plan that's written by VCs, that the VCs win and the people who aren't part of that plan don't. Well, it's like Vegas, right? I mean, the house always yeah. wins. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I shouldn't say the house always wins. The odds are in favor, of, you know, for in favor for the house, right? Yeah. And you know, I, I, that, you know, we could launch into a whole separate conversation about, you know, my feelings as well about, you know, venture capital and how it's done. And, and, you know, I know plenty of venture capitalists who I I really, truly believe are investing in, in companies who are looking to make a difference, but you know, there are plenty who aren't to your point. And I mean, we're all in business to make money. Although I think maybe the distinction is, if you and I and anyone else who are building companies and who have built companies are truly committed to what we're doing and the outcome for our customer, the money will come if you're putting all the right steps in place. No, I absolutely agree. So it's not like, let's see what we need to do to make money as opposed to let's see what we need to do to make a difference for people in the world, whatever that might be. And if we do it mm-hmm. the right way, money will come. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And so I think that and that's basically the story of Expensify as well. Again, we started, I was just scratching a personal itch and I wanted to basically help people. Around right. Me. And then in the process of doing that, like once you just start get going and you're doing anything at all, then you can start to steer. But like you can't steer a car that's not moving. And so I think everyone spends so much time is like trying to plan out the perfect business and then never turn on the cards. It's like nothing happened yet. Like you just start going anywhere and then the opportunities will reveal themselves over time. And there are opportunities that you would have never guessed. Like nothing about my business model would have worked um, at the time that I started it. Like basically, because I started Expensify, it was like the um, uh, iPhone hadn't launched. Um, there was no app store. Uh, and so like the our entire business model hinges upon a technology that didn't even exist when I started the business. Right. Um, and then likewise, the first camera phones were so bad, they didn't have any near-term focus. You couldn't, you couldn't read the images But actually, the hilarious thing was I knew that and I didn't care because, again, I wasn't actually trying to build a business. I was trying to um, convince banks with this fake expense reporting company. And so I'm like, oh, yeah, we do receipt scanning. And I knew that the receipts were so bad it didn't work, but it didn't matter. Then the next generation, but I became known as like this app for scanning receipts, which simply just didn't exist or even work. (laughs) Um, And then the next generation of the phone got an autofocus camera. And so now you could actually scan crystal clear uh, receipts from the room. And so... 
I think like anyone who is basically trying to like do the numbers and build a business plan and sort of like figure out what's going to work, they would have they, they would have years behind. Uh, like there's so many people out there trying so many different things. You can't agonize over your, each individual decision. You just have to get going and then figure it out as you go. So uh, you raised uh, $20 million uh, in investment prior to going public, which you did just this past November. Yeah. Um, tell me why you decided to go public at this point. Was there an option of an acquisition, selling the company? Well, yeah, I mean, that option is always there. But like, um, no, we were a profitable company. We just like put money in the bank every month. And so there was, we had an infinite, you know, runway, if you will. Um, and we had uh, a, so a super profitable company in a high margin part of the market that's untapped with no competition mm-hmm. um, and a zero marginal cost um, acquisition model. Um, and so uh, there was no obligation for us to go public, you know, on any particular time. But it really just came down to we had institutional, like we did take money in, in early days. We didn't raise money forever, though. Um, and so after, but like the VCs have a business model. They're like, hey, I invested money with you, but I kind of need it back because it's not mine. I've been in here for like 10 years. You're profitable. And so there's no need for you to ever sell, but it's, I still need to get my money back. Right. And so we actually started doing, um, to provide liquidity to uh, early shareholders like or investors, we started doing um, leveraged buyouts of our VCs. Um, so we'd actually take on debt as a business, mm-hmm. buy back all the shares and then cancel them. Um, and so we did this a couple of times, um, which you can only do if you're profitable, but like the math doesn't work out to like buy out everyone. By the time you could afford to buy everyone, you'd have to be so profitable that your valuation increased, they wouldn't sell. Um, and so basically the only way to get liquidity for our shareholders, like was to go public, there was no way to keep doing it. And so we could have like, obviously kept raising money or whatever, but like, that's, we didn't need the money. Um, we could have been acquired, but like, that's not fun. What's the point of that? Like, you're going to work all this time to build a company and then sell it. I'm like, what am I going to go fishing? That's like, you know, Plenty of people do. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I think it's because again, this comes down to like, there's two business models in Silicon Valley, like build a viable business, care about profit, employee retention, things like this. No one does that. Like almost no one does that. Everyone's goal is just like sell to a bigger sucker. Uh, it's basically just like build something and then, uh, try to like race for the exit as soon as you possibly can. If it doesn't work out, it's fine. You fail fast. If it, um, if it does work out, great. You become a serial entrepreneur. But like, the only other time anyone uses the word serial is serial killer. It's like, it's, <laughs> like I don't know why we celebrate this idea. If basically, yeah. it's like, like the serial founders is like, oh, you know, I really care about this product and these customers and my employees. We're like a family, you know. And then I sold them all to the highest bidder and did it all over again. It's, yeah. like, it's a fucking monster. And so mm-hmm. now I think that. I don't want to sell. Like, uh, get the greatest thing in the world here. The greatest employees, awesome customers, right. great business model. Like, no, I've spent forever trying to get to this point. I'm not going to start over. Yeah, no, I get it. Um, so, so I'm curious about, uh, and, and, and I want to know if this is just to, it has mostly to do with the fact that tech is getting completely beaten up um, <laughs> right now on the NASDAQ, as we both know. Um, but you know, you IPO'd at about forty dollars a share, and I think yesterday you closed around fifteen ish. So, can you? I mean, is that you know, tech getting beaten up? Is it you know just the unfortunately unfortunate saga of maybe not making Wall Street as happy as you need to, mm. which is of course one of the negatives about having an IPO, right? Uh, well, I would say so. First off, uh, or something else. Yeah, or something else. I'd say. Um, so first off, actually, one of the first rules we put in place, like day, uh, IPO night at the uh, at the company party, we're like, all right, everyone, first rule of being a public is we never talk about being public. So we never talk about share price. Um, uh, it doesn't enter. It's like forbidden in the office. You can't discuss it in Slack. So share price is not involved in your discussions. Likewise, um, I actually don't look at the share price. I haven't. I have not looked at the share price since I since the day of IPO. Um, so like every once in a while, I hear about it from people like you. It's like you spoiled it, but that's fine. Um, uh, and I think that we've worked hard to make a company that just doesn't, it's not focused on, like our measure of success is not share price because we have almost no control mm-hmm. over it in the near term. Right. Our measure of success is like long-term positive cash flow. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'd say, like, I think one of the earliest things we learned because the market's just so crazy, like uh, halfway through a quarter, our, we see like our highest share price and then a week later, our lowest share price. It's like, that has nothing to do with us. We haven't revealed mm-hmm. any information whatsoever. And so I think that um, by and large, like the uh, the brutalization of the tech industry um, has almost nothing to do with us. And it has a huge impact upon share price in the short term. 
But like, uh, but like, we're not here for the short term. We're here for the long term, and so we just don't really think about it. Got it. Well, no, I mean, I think that's for frankly, I think it's a really healthy attitude to have. Um, you know, so many companies just freak out when their stock goes down, and you know, yeah. I mean, as long as you're as long as you're putting one one foot in front of the other, and you're getting from point A to point B in the way that you know, makes everyone happy. You know, your employees are happy. You're happy. You're, you're making a difference with what you're doing. You know, ultimately, uh, you know, I think that's the most important thing, you know, may not be worth yeah. as much when, you know, somebody decides to leave and sh- cash out or if they even decide to, right. But, you know, this is the, this is the nature of the risk, you know, anyone takes when they go to a startup, right? Yeah. And plus, I mean, I think we're all, I mean, we're a very small company. Um, and so, I think everyone's real happy, um, even at the current share price, and we're going to be happier when it goes up, um, yep. and that's that. So I think Good. that fundamentally, we're all highly invested in the long term. Um, and I think to your point, like if you're just like putting one foot in front of the other and focused on building that long term value, like it it all works out in the end, and you just yeah. can't stress out too much about the details. Mm-hmm. So uh, tell me a little bit about, you know, this is the first time you founded a company. You know, again, we talked about you've worked for a lot of startups. What did you learn from those startups that had you build your company as a founder in a particular way? That's a good question. I think there was a series of of epiphanies along the way. Um, And kind of like the biggest bucket of them is just don't do things that you think aren't going to work. Which sounds super obvious. Like, well, why would anyone do very something counterintuitive, that, right? they, yeah. that they think is going to work? But then, mm-hmm. but everyone does it. Like, all the startups are basically like, um, like, oh, you know, um, yeah, we get these compensation bans and this job. It doesn't really make sense. It's not super fair. But like, that's what you do. That's what you do. Or like, we got this technology stack that doesn't really make sense. But like, you know, everyone else does it. And so everyone's so afraid to have the courage to do it their own way that they end up making a bunch of compromises they don't even believe in, but they just feel like they have to. And then they're stuck with something. It's like, well, I didn't really want this. I didn't think it was going to work. And it doesn't. And so it's like, well, what did you learn? Like, what was that all about? I think the main thing is just have the courage to do it the way that you actually think is a good way. But that often means doing something like quite different. Like the company is, like every part of our company is is different and radical. Um, as I mentioned, our business model is completely unlike what else. Like our technology is different. Like you mentioned that we built this blockchain based database before Bitcoin, and like no one was telling us to do that. Um, and so I think that uh, you know the main thing is just have the conviction to believe in your own vision. Because if you're an entrepreneur, it's because you think you're smarter than the next guy. So why are you asking the next guy for advice? Like that doesn't make any sense. You can't follow your way to the lead. You at some point have to start trusting your own instincts, making your own decisions, um, yep. and then and then being comfortable with like you know sometimes you fail, but failure is only a failure if you stop at that point. If you do it in the broad context, it's like no, that was an important lesson that enabled you to succeed the next time. So I think yeah, just have the the courage to actually do it your way because it's your company. Um, and once you start giving up control of your company to someone else, it's no longer your company. And I don't, then it's unclear whose it even is. Yeah, well, that's a very good point. So if you look back over the last 14 years, David, what would you say are some of the biggest mistakes you made? How long did it take you to realize that? And then how long did it take you to say, okay, I got to change this right now? Well, I would say the biggest mistake was raising that $20 million. Um, interesting. And, uh, Mm. because like, so again, it took me a long time to kind of catch on to the VC game. Um, (laughs) and that it has nothing to do about helping me or Mm -hmm. customers or my business or anything like that. It's like, let's imagine you went to like a hot dog salesman and you're like, you know, Hey, I mean, I have this problem in my business. What should I do? They're like, Hmm, I thought about this very deeply. I think you need to buy hot dogs from me. (laughs) It's just like the answer to every single question problem the vc is like you need to raise more money um because that's their business yeah. they sell money well um, right of course they, they get more of your they get more of your company when you do that yeah and but also that that's a, they don't even actually care about that either because that mm-hmm. implies that they care about the value of your company which they largely don't right uh, they care like they make their money by investing in you because they take more management fees um right and so like it, it, the, over the duration of your lifetime the bulk of the money they make is probably just based on like the fact that you you took money. So they just don't care. Um, like they want you to be like a thousand x return or something like that, because then you can actually move the needle of the whole portfolio. But if you're not a thousand x return, they literally do not care about you whatsoever. Your failure or your success is like marginal. It doesn't matter. Um, and so I think that, uh, but I didn't I didn't know that. 
uh, for a long time. And so I raised money and, and bought into that bullshit. I'm like, oh, you know, I got to do this and like spend it on ads or whatever it is. And like people think when you raise a million dollars that, you know, you have a million dollars of the value, but it's, it's actually not. What you get for it is what you spent it on. And if you just squandered a million dollars, means you gave up a million dollars of shares and you got nothing in return. And so I gave up $20 million in shares and got, I don't know, it's very questionable what we got out of that. Uh, because we spent it on a bunch of stuff that our VCs told us to do it. And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, I guess we should do that. And then didn't really get anything out of any of it. And I didn't, and that was the worst, kind of going back to my previous point. I didn't even think it was going to work. I'm like, man, this math, the math of these ads d- does not add up. Like, I know you're saying everyone does this and this is a good idea, but like, this seems like a huge waste of money. But you know what? You're the boss, I guess, even though I'm technically the boss. And so, anyway, so I think the biggest, you know, regret was an over raising money. No, in the grand scheme of things, $20 million is basically it's nothing, nothing compared to what some companies raise. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so, but so we did learn that lesson relatively early. I just wish I had learned it earlier um, because the consequence of that is and then we had all these investors that like demanded these returns and, mm-hmm. and we were profitable and they were just like, we were, we were fundamentally misaligned with our investors because they didn't, if you become profitable, you are the enemy of your VC. Because again, they like, that's like saying it's like a hot dog salesman, like investing in a hot dog company. It's like, no, they don't want to do that. They, they're competitors. Like they want unprofitable companies because that's their business model. And so we just got profitable. They're like, what? Why did you do that? That's a terrible idea. Like, I don't know, making a real business. They're like, aren't you going to sell? I'm like, no. It's like, why wouldn't you sell? It's like, and do what? Go fishing? I'm like, I don't like to fish. I don't know. Um, and so I think fundamentally it took uh, some time to really get in touch and get develop that confidence that like, no, actually we're building something meaningful uh, that's important to our customers and to our employees. Uh, and we're building long-term value through positive cash flow. And none of those are interesting to Silicon Valley. Do you think that the reason you took on uh, venture capital early on is because that's what you'd seen all these other startups do that you'd been part of? Yeah, the money was just too good. It was basically like, so, I mean, because I had money in the bank. Um, and so like, it was just like, I'm, I'm an engineer. And so I just built a bunch of stuff. And like my co-founder is an engineer. We just built a bunch of stuff. We just lived off of savings. Um, and uh, and then the term sheets just started coming in. We're like, wow, like, I don't know what I'm going to do with a million bucks, but a million bucks sounds like fun. Um, and so we just like took it. Then they're like, okay, you want more? We're like, oh, wow, you just give me a million. But like, now these other people want to give us like, you know, yeah. another five. Sure, I guess. Um, and uh, and then it took, but then like it committed us to a certain path. We overspent, mm-hmm. we were hired. And then it's just like, shit, now I actually need more money. Otherwise, I'm going to go out of business. So I have to raise more money. Um, um, and it's like, then we added, okay, now I've got like 20. And I was like, oh my God, but like this whole path isn't even really working. Um, and I think that actually came down to like a very pivotal moment uh, where mm-hmm. um, basically we're like, we're going to, going out to raise money. Like everything's up to the right. Um, all like everyone uses us, um, but our business model was so weird because it didn't spend anything, um, on, uh, and, and so it, I couldn't, I just couldn't close this round because and all the VCs I was talking to, they're like, look, I mean, you're obviously successful. Your business is going to be great, but like, I don't get how it works. And so, uh, and I, I, I have a, a profile that I invest in. You don't meet that profile. And so I just cannot get my firm to invest in you. Like, I think you're great. I think you're going to succeed, but I can't invest in you. And I heard that from 50 VCs around the Silicon Valley, like one by one. And then so basically I'm like, oh shit, like guys, we're, like, we're going to run out of the money here. Um, uh, and so I'm going to cut all this spend, which is not working, which is now I see was a horrible mistake and the right. biggest strategic blunder in the company. Um, mm-hmm. And we're going to cut back salaries by like 15%. And we're just going to ride this out because I see that we're getting close to profitability. And my investors were like, this is a terrible idea. Um, it will never work. It's impossible to get like uh, profitable. Why would you even want to be profitable? You're going to decimate the value of your company. Um, I remember actually one of them sat down with me and was like, um, David, you, you, you are the biggest liability for this company. Like you need to step aside for someone else, for us to bring in a more seasoned CEO to run this like it's supposed to be run. Um, and so, yeah, I think that um, over-raising uh, was without question the biggest strategic blunder of the company, um, and it took us it took us all the way to IPO to solve. So, why do you think you overspent? Uh, it was just like you know shit that doesn't matter. Like um, just hire a bunch of people. Like oh, you know uh, when you when you have just like money burning a hole in your pocket, and people that say they're uh, they say they're going to give you more, and they're also like asking why aren't you spending more. 
then suddenly you can find a lot of ways to spend it. But like, well, you know what? I mean, like, why not spend this advertising? It's not going to hurt. Um, I don't know how much it's going to help, but it's going it's to be incremental in some fashion. Or, um, yeah, you know, let's just spin up a team to focus on this very long-term problem. Uh, like, you know, it's going to help eventually sort of thing. And so it's just a bunch of stupid shit. Like, and, and, and the thing, like, even at the time, we didn't expect any sort of return. We didn't mm-hmm. get any return. And so, like, it accomplished the goal of RVC, which is it spent our money um, and forced us into a position where we needed more. Um, and so I think that uh, once we learned that, we're like, whoa, actually, that's a, we're just idiots. So thank you for that very expensive lesson. But now we know and we can solve it. And we said, instead, screw this, we're just going to get profitable. And we just then we just got profitable over since. What's the competitive nature of your business look like? Well, there's I mean, like in, in the market you're in, not, you know, not the, the, not the bloody, you know, we're all these, all these companies are, are, you know, going for the fortune 1000, but where you are, what's the competitive nature look like? I mean, the competitive landscape, uh, for the bulk of our customers, uh, our, uh, our competition is email and Excel. It's just simple non-consumption. There's just like, really most, most people, uh, who signed up for expense, I couldn't name another competitor. Um, oh, they're, because they're, they don't view themselves as being in markets because they're like a small business and mm-hmm. they're just trying to survive and trying to like mm-hmm. optimize their expense reports. They're like, I just don't care. Like I have so many more important things to do today. And like, I'm just not going to get to that. Mm-hmm. And the business owners are like, yeah, it's hard to get reimbursed. That's not exactly my problem because that's an employee problem. Um, and so they don't even view themselves as actually looking for this solution. Um, they're not clicking ads. They're not taking calls, whatever it is. Then our model is, we go to an employee who just hates their solution. Like, oh my God, I can never get paid back or whatever it is. We just give them a tool, which is free. We say, hey, this tool is free. It gives you a corporate card, invoicing, bill payment, expense management. It connects to everything. Uh, you're going to be a hero in your company and also solve your own problem. And then they bring it to their company and they kind of, it's like, hey, can we just use Expensify? The boss is like, what? Sure. It's free? It, well, that's cool. Yeah, whatever. Sure. Looks good. Uh, and then the, we're just in. And then by the time they get to a certain level of complexity, uh, then they start to value our, our premium functionality. They're like, well, we're already here, so let's just start paying a bit more. They don't even realize they're paying a massively higher price uh, than they would pay if they went through an enterprise sales process. But small business doesn't have a procurement team. No one's job is to make a number that small go down. They're like, mm-hmm. nine bucks a month? Whatever, that sounds cheap. Now, to the enterprise, like, nine bucks a month? That's fucking crazy. I'm going to pay $1 a month. Um, but to a business owner, they're like, that's like a happy meal per employee yep. per month. Like whatever, <laughs> it just doesn't matter. Uh, and so there's, um, and so the SMB is great if you can capture it at scale, but you have to have a low cost of sale model. Mm-hmm. Once you're there, then the the sort of automatic growth that you get, the revenue expansion from this market's great because no one's job is to renegotiate a contract or even think about it. So long as you're just good enough, no one will even notice that you're there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, what you're what you're describing is what I think is super important. And I had this conversation with somebody I interviewed um, prior, you know, last week that said, you know, we're we're just getting ready to launch our freemium model in a month, right? I mean, you know, how how better to get customers than give them something first, let them try it out, let them fall in love with it. Mm-hmm. And the next thing you know, they're like, God, we love this. We'd like to buy it. And gosh, it's only this much a month. Or even if it's not only this much a month, you know, once they realize that they really need this, you know, you've got them as a customer. Yeah. And I think a freemium model works great if you have a low cost of uh, acquisition sales model. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you need like free lead gen. That's why I think the viral functionality is so important. Like the most important feature you'll ever, ever build is the one that helps sign up the next customer. Because that's the one that makes every customer slightly easier to get. If you don't have that, every customer is just as hard as the last one. Mm-hmm. And so having some sort of, if there's any viral dynamic to your business model, mm-hmm. that is the most important thing to invest in. It should be the basis of your entire company. It's more important than your advertising, your marketing, your engineering. It is mm-hmm. the most important thing in your entire company. And most companies never stop to think about it. Um, like to give an example. So like one of our competitors is a company called Bill.com. And so Bill.com is the you know, the most famous sort of like bill processing system. Mm-hmm. Um, they also have an invoicing solution. So like if you want to send an invoice or you want to pay a bill, you can use two different products in bill.com. But weirdly enough, so every time you send an invoice, it always goes to someone who pays bills. An invoice and a bill are the same thing. So like you send an invoice mm-hmm. um, to the accounts payable. The accounts payable, right? Sure. Yep, yep. Um, 
but the weird thing is Bill.com's invoicing solution, even though 100% of people who receive a Bill.com invoice pay bills, doesn't even promote their bill processing solution. They're just different departments. Um, and so it, it's because they're just not built in that. In fact, they, so Bill.com has not just one, they have two different bill processing system and three different invoicing solutions. Um, and so like, they, and they don't cross promote each other because it's madness. Like they're different brands and things like this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it's hard to, from the, from day one to think about that viral dynamic and be like, actually, no, I know bill processing and invoicing seem on the surface and everyone says they're completely different industries. We think they're the exact same thing. And so we built our platform around this kind of radical notion that payments and chat are the same thing. Just like you can't talk to yourself, you can't pay yourself. Um, and every time you're going to go pay someone, if you weren't using a payment tool, you'd have to go talk to them first. And so we viewed it as every form of payments exists in a spectrum between unstructured WhatsApp style chat and highly structured concur style expense reporting and every form of payments in between there. Like a paycheck is just an expense report submitted twice a month for you automatically. Right. An invoice and a bill are the same thing. Mm-hmm. Consumer P2P like Venmo style payments, that's just invoicing, but simplified down for the consumer. And chat is just invoicing without the money. So we built this platform that actually spans this entire gamut and lets us tap into the viral dynamic. Like we use our bill processing and bill payment to leapfrog between the accounting departments of our customers. And so they just, they just naturally promote us for free. Um, we use the uh, consumer a Venmo style a P2P to promote Expensify. So every time Expensify is deployed to a bunch of employees, those employees just promote us to all of their friends and roommates. Because if you work on a company that uses Expensify, odds are your friends work in companies that should be using Expensify. So it's because every company in the world can use Expensify. And so it's this is a kind of a radical approach that requires blurring a bunch of lines that people think are walls. But like, no, that was just like, that was just chalk in the ground. Just, I was going to choose to step over it. But everyone is sort of so trapped into kind of the definition of the markets as defined by someone else. It's kind of like turn off all that noise and focus like what do customers actually do and what do they right. care about? And it's usually very different than what the investors will tell you. Well, right. <laughs> you know, that's that's the value of actually, you know, asking your prospects and customers what they need and what their yeah, problems are it, rather than assuming what you think they are. Right. Yes. And I think that's also one advantage I had going on this market is I knew I knew nothing about it um, because I didn't I didn't have a background in finance. I was just trying to make this food stamps card and I didn't know anything about expense reports. And so when people started getting really excited by it, I'm like, okay, what is it that you think that I'm doing? And like, why do you care? And maybe I can just do that. Like, Oh, you right. want me to build an app to scan receipts? Like, whatever, I can do that. Um, and so having really no agenda uh, beyond, it's just like, I'm just going to really listen hard to what people are saying and then see if I can do that. And like, you just repeat that for like I right. know, 14 years and it adds up to be something. And it's yeah. usually very different than what you initially set out to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting and very true. So what would you say are the kind of biggest challenges you're facing within your industry, if anything? I mean, I think the challenge is always customer acquisition um, and just the noise of these l- failed business models. Like, I mean, we're, there's like a string of dead businesses behind us that like, we're, it's the Expensify killer. It's just like, yeah, join the line. Like that's, it's over there. Um, and uh, they'll come in, they'll raise like a shit ton of money. They'll spend it all, um, like confuse the marketplace and then they'll get acquired and never hear about it again. It's like, we've been through this cycle so many times. Um, and it's requires a lot of conviction to be like, just turn all that noise off and be like, yep, we're just going through this cycle again. Um, but it's just so noisy for us and for customers and for investors and the markets and things like this. Um, and so I think that the biggest challenge is sticking to your guns and believing in your own business model, because it's easy when someone comes in with like a new angle, they're like, shit, like they got the jump on us. We need to change everything. It's just like, no, actually we consider that. And there's a reason why we don't do it that way. Um, we're, we really believe in our particular model. Um, cause it's, it's easy to make a small amount of money very quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if you're willing to lose twice as much money in the process. Um, and so like you always see all these competitors presenting this sort of like, you know, this brave face and this like, you know, this incredible success story. And then like, you know, years later you learn, it's like, nope, that was all lies. Actually, everything was falling apart under the hood. The economics never made sense. They get acquired for a tiny fraction of what they raised. Uh, but the liquidation preference basically made the investors rich because it always does. Employees got screwed, customers got screwed as well. And so after you've been through this cycle a few times, then you can kind of like build up your stamina for that. 
but it is hard, um, especially when you're small and you're like in a noisy environment, just to stay kind of true to your own vision. Yeah. Yeah. That's very smart. So um, you've got about 150 employees now. Tell me a little bit about the journey from, you know, and, and forgetting about the overspending and overhiring part. Okay. Um, the journey from when you started the company to how you got to 150 employees and, you know, what kind of mistakes you made along the way when it came to hiring and why do you think mm, you made those? I would say, so hiring is tough and I don't think anyone's yes. really mastered it. Um, and I don't, and I think that the reality is like when you're a small startup, like you're a terrible business. Like you're mm -hmm. just not, not going to get the best people. Like why would the best people join your crappy little startup? Like it doesn't actually make sense. Um, and so, and I think everyone goes like, oh, I'm going to go to Silicon Valley and I'm going to hire some great people. Like anyone in Silicon Valley who doesn't already have a job must be the worst. Like uh, <laughs> you should definitely not be hiring in Silicon Valley because you're, that means like you're, you're getting the dregs left over from literally every other business in the world. Like that's a terrible place. You should go to your hometown, focus on like the people that are being overlooked uh, because great people appear everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, uh, so I wouldn't say that they're necessarily mistakes, but one of the challenges as you're sort of hiring is that your ability to attract talent increases over time, but you got to make do with the people that you can get at the time. Um, and so uh, what that plays out as, and so and I think there's kind of like this great saying, you know, A people hire other A people, mm -hmm. B people hire C people. Because like really <laughs> great people want to work and be challenged by other really great people. Of course like they do. Average yeah. people just mm -hmm. want minions to obey them. Um, and so from the earliest days, even like, even though we're a crappy little startup, that like no one really wanted to join. Um, we insisted on maintaining this kind of like a philosophy saying like, nope, we're only going to hire people that we think are great and we're going to raise the bar over time. Um, and so it's been, we hired incredibly slowly for the longest time. Like we have 150 employees after 14 years. That's like, that's real slow. Um, right. Yeah. And, and so even now it's like we hire, we've been continuously hiring this entire time. We've never stopped. Um, but this is all we've got. Um, and these are this, the only, this is 150 people and they're all absolutely amazing, but only because we, um, had the patience and fortitude to say no. Uh, because I think it's so often, especially when you're raising a bunch of money and you're like money in your bank sort of thing, like just got to go raise that, like, you know, that top level of executive or whatever it is. It's like that person probably sucks. Like why would that person join your company? Uh, like if, if you're their best option, you really got to ask, like, you know, is, is, are you the best? Um, and so I think the, we are very, very selective about people and trying to find, we evaluate people, um, on three criteria, um, talent. Um, so like, you know, uh, the ability to learn without being taught and teach others what, what you know, um, mm -hmm. ambition, like a, a genuine goal for your own life and some demonstrated effort towards it uh, and humility, like the, the, you know, the genuine appreciation of ideas, others than your own. Um, notably absent from this is experience. Um, experience is cheap. Experience just happens, just means you didn't get fired. Uh, it just happens through life. Um, and so I think that if you can get people that are talent, uh, talented, ambitious, and humble, they will be superstars. It's just a matter of time. And so I think that we've er learned early on that we have to capture people super early in their careers and help them build what they're going to do because the best people are going to be unattainable after a few years into their careers. Um, they're just going to be like so highly sought after. There's no way you're going to get them. And so I think that uh, being patient to hire people um, that are have the potential to be superstars, but you have to build them to be superstars and give them an environment that enables them to do that right. by surrounding them with other superstars. And that's such a slow and laborious process that requires patience. And most companies just like don't have that patience. They just are not patient. And, and you know, that, that what you're saying, uh, it, you know, is one of the five pieces of what it is to build a town centric organization, which is developing your employees. Right. So what specifically are you doing to develop your employees to help them learn and grow and be better and be leaders or whatever it is? Yeah. I mean, I expense is weird in a whole bunch of ways. So I can like list off a few of them, but for one is, um, so we don't have any internal management structure. Like no one reports to anyone else. Um, they basically say from day one, it's like, great. Uh, welcome to Expensify. You're trusted. You're empowered. Do literally anything that you want. Anything that's in your power to accomplish, do it. If you want someone else, go convince them to do it and then do it together. There's a big catch, however, and that is um, uh, your compensation is decided by your peers. Uh, twice a year, we vote on everyone's compensation. Um, and so it's like, so literally do anything you want, but if it sucks, you're not going to get, you're not going to make a lot of money. 
Um, and so I just, these natural forces mean it's like you are the best equipped to know what you're capable of doing. Um, but you need to pay attention to your peers because uh, at some point, anything cool requires the help of like a bunch of people. And so it's, it's a mix an environment where everyone is basically has their, that's where the importance of ambition. We say, no one's going to tell you what to do, which mo most people are like, oh, that's great. But actually that means no one's also going to tell you what to do. You need to decide for yourself what to do. And if you choose to do nothing, which is a choice, but it's not going to make you much money um, because everyone's going to see that you're slacking and then performance improvement kicks in and there's all these other systems. And so I'd say um, no managers, so a, a flat system, um, but uh, peer compensation uh, creates great sort of incentives. Mm -hmm. But it only works if everyone is tightly integrated. Like you have to, if you're going to vote on everyone else's compensation, you got to kind of have a sense of what they're doing. This drives like pretty radical transparency. Everything's written down. Everything's in public. Um, it also means that you have to have a relatively small group of people um, because you can't have this. I don't know if this would scale to 10,000 people or whatever. Who knows? Right. Um, but it works at 150. Um, and only because we've grown it up slowly over time to get to that scale. Mm -hmm. So we invest in a ton of sort of uh, engagement between employees. Like we take the whole company overseas for a month with families and kids. Mm -hmm. um, and so like we like, uh, and we rent out like the Hotel Intercontinental in uh, Da Nang, Vietnam or something like mm -hmm. that, bring everyone together from around the world. Um, we're going to Spain in a little bit. We're going to mm -hmm. like, you know, Quebec City in a little bit. And so we invest a ton in creating um, opportunities for people to collaborate with each other and get to know each other in a social setting uh, because those relationships are what enable them to be the superstars in that environment when they go back to the office. Um, and so I think there's like a, a whole bunch of different things that kind of like small tweaks uh, to the system uh, accumulated over the, you know, over the decade plus that all come down to how do you find the right people? How do you uh, align their incentives properly? How do you pay attention to them to such a degree that when people aren't working out, you can actually provide them the support necessary to succeed? And probably the most important thing is when someone isn't working out, to fire them. Um, I think that's like we did this for a famous campaign in, in uh, Bay Area, uh, basically as billboards instead of we fire people. Um, this is like an under head subtext. Like, you know, that guy that everyone hates that doesn't do anything. Yeah, we have them. And it's like we let them go because most companies like it's, it's much more like your team. The quality of your team is more dictated or it's rather less dictated by who you hire, but then by who you fire. Because it's, it's like, it should be like boiling out. It's like making a balsamic reduction. It's not about how much left the pot. It's about what, what remains in there. And so it's about, yes, be very, very selective about who you bring into your team, but also recognize that you're imperfect. Whatever filters you have aren't the best. And so you need to invest in people to make them, um, uh, to enable the, the most out of them. And when someone's not able to sort of keep up, to get honest with that and say like, this is not a good environment for you. Like you're not happy here and you're not succeeding here. There's a better place for you. Very important. I agree. Yeah. So what you said it leads me to one more question that I, I feel I have to get the answer to now. It, it, it Being such a flat organization, you don't have an executive team, right? Is it just you and then all the other employees? So um, uh, we have to have certain titles to, you know, to be a company. Like you have okay. to have president, you have to, as president CEO, okay. treasurer, secretary, things like this. Um, likewise, and so uh, in order to go public, um, we just realized we couldn't do it without a C-suite because right. people would just right. freak out. Um, they're just like, who do I talk to? How does anything work? And it's like, right. I could explain a million things to you, or I could say these five people run everything. Um, and so actually in the process of going public, uh, we said, okay, we're going to create the fewest titles necessary mm -hmm. to get the job done. CFO, um, so CEO, whatever with, that, yeah, right. Yeah, so exactly. Like, And even though you don't legally need them, um, if you don't have them, it just creates questions. That just so it makes people out. feel better. Yeah. And so we've created basically, so we do have an executive team of five people you see them on the website and things like this. Mm -hmm. Those executive titles don't mean anything internally. Um, like uh, just it. because someone's like chief strategy officer, mm -hmm. like that's whatever, that doesn't mean anything at all. It's mm -hmm. just a smart person that we can put in front of an investor that they can speak confidently about. And if you, but if you just said like, no, you're just going to talk to Daniel who has no title. They can be like, I don't talk to this person. If you're going to talk to Daniel or chief strategy officer, they'll be like, oh yeah, definitely. That sounds great. It's like same person. The only difference is how we describe them. That's fantastic. I love it. So um, when you're not uh, leading your team at Expensify, uh, I, I know that uh, you enjoy playing Minecraft with your with your daughter. <laughs> so much, yes. Yeah. So what is it that you, how old is your daughter? What What is it that you love doing about that? Uh, you know, what is it that, that you love about that? And what else do you do in your free time? 
Yeah, so I'd say, uh, so she's seven years old. She's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Um, And Minecraft is like the most creative game I've ever even imagined. Like, uh, so if you think sitting down and play Legos with your kids would be creative, I'm like, oh, that's super Mm -hmm. educational, great. Mm -hmm. Minecraft is imagine an infinite world of a whole bunch of different sort of like biomes and ecosystems uh, full of animals and dragons and monsters Mm -hmm. with infinite Legos that you can build anything you can imagine of any scale. You can fill it with lava, throw cats into it, cover it in water, (laughs) blow it up, whatever it is. And so you can build circuits inside of Uh it. And so like it it is the most educational game I can, I've ever even encountered. And it's so much fun. And so we just, for hours a day, let's sit around just like, Let's go build a castle. I don't know. Let's like build a, 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 a I'll walk into a trap and she'll make a trap door and I'll step on something and fucking blows up, whatever it is. I'm like, oh my gosh, you built a circuit here and you didn't even know it. Like this is such educational stuff. Mm-hmm. And so now I love Minecraft. I'm in, I'm all, I'm all in. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, I'd say if I'm not working, um, uh, playing with my daughter, I'm on the dating apps. Dating apps are so much fun. I was uh, married for 15 years. Got, uh, got divorced about four years ago. Uh, Man, this this is a crazy world out there. Super fun, and I think it's great for just getting out of your comfort zone and meeting people mm-hmm. that you just never met otherwise. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's uh, you know just hearing different stories and hearing different perspectives. Mm-hmm. It's like that's fun. That's fantastic. So if somebody listening uh, loves your business model, loves you know your flat organization, how you do things, and and they're thinking, gosh, this is I, I'd like to maybe investigate working for this company what should they do it's very easy um you go to we.r.expensify.com uh, or just email hold on you said that a little com. too fast let's make sure so we get that we.r a-r-e or the letter r a-r-e okay uh, anyone who um is looking for a job i'm sure can find this just search expensify jobs there's a million ways to find this uh email me i'm david at expensify.com uh you can tweet me uh d barrett on twitter um, I'm sure there's a thousand ways, uh, but any of them will work and any of them will get to the same place. Fantastic. Well, David Barrett, uh, founder and CEO of Expensify, this has been a really engaging conversation and I've really loved hearing about your company and I think uh, my audience will as well. Great. Well, thanks. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to Authentically Successful. If you are a successful founder or CEO who would like to be on this program, please visit verticalelevation.com slash podcast slash apply. If you learned something from this interview and it made a difference, please share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend. And if you know of someone who would be a great guest, tag them on LinkedIn or Twitter to let them know about the show and include the hashtag authentically successful. I love seeing your posts and great suggestions. Lastly, we are regularly putting out new episodes and content. And to make sure you don't miss any episodes, please subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. If you want to know more, go to our website, verticalelevation.com, or follow me on LinkedIn. This is Carol Schultz. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. 